Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Good morning, Hill City. The sixth psalm. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. And the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Please be seated. Psalm 6, or the sixth psalm, is a psalm of lament. It's a prayer song of lament, which, to be quite honest, this is my perspective in in our everyday Christian life. I don't know if lament which is 40% of the Psalms, is a major percentage of our prayer life. And probably it should be with the recognizing of things that are in our life, things that might not be going well, things that need to improve. So when I'm preparing this, it's not like I've done a whole series in the past on the Psalms of Lament. So I grabbed a couple of resources and I found this one very helpful. Someone wrote a book on all the Psalms of Lament. And I liked this quote. It says, lament is a complex language of complaint, protest, and appeal. Now, I think a lot of us, we can understand a complex language of complaint, appeal, you know, just complaining, murmuring. Well, what's different is this is to God, right? This isn't to someone else. This isn't to a spouse. It's a complex language of complaint and protest and appeal directed toward God. God's people speak the reality of their lives. All those phrases we use, like real, like doing life together. This is going to God with the reality of our lives. Going to him with reality of lives and their pain and their confusion. This is a great next phrase. To the one who can do something about it. That book is Hurting with God, Learning to Lament in the Psalms. And a lament, very simply, is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. So like we do every week when we, start to, when we open up the Bible, we look at the historicity. What would King David, who wrote this, have been, what would he have been feeling? What was his life in ancient Israel? What, so when he wrote this, when he left this for others... What would he have been thinking? What would have been the framework of his understanding? He wrote this, the the title is, To the Choir Master, A Psalm of David. So this is 
a retrospect of one time in David's life, and, and to be honest, this is unlike some of the other Psalms. We don't know when he wrote this. We don't know the exact circumstances in which he wrote this. Many scholars and commentaries will give you theories, but let me just tell you, if God wanted us to know when exactly this was in David's life, would we have known? Most definitely. Some of the other Psalms have inscriptions of those times. But David leaving this to the choir master, the purpose was so that he could leave it to others. So that others could come into the sanctuary and this would be a psalm that they would sing. In fact, in the church, this has been a psalm that was sung at Lent. So when we take the context of the Old Testament... And as we do every Sunday morning, when you read the Bible, all the time when you open up the Old Testament, you build that bridge so that you can apply it in your life. And many times that bridge is the New Testament that, that bridges that understanding from the Old Testament, what David would have been thinking, all the way to the New Testament. Let me just tell you, sometimes the people of God and the way that God is dealing with people in the Old Testament, it's the exact same all the way over into our lives, throughout the New Testament, our lives. But sometimes the way that God deals with people and the way that he requires us to deal with him from the Old Testament and New Testament has either morphed or changed. And we're going to look at it. Because if you start to read some of the Psalms, it's a little confusing, is it not? In fact, if you've read some of the Psalms that are called imprecatory Psalms or Psalms of imprecation, you're like, what's that? It's a fancy word for saying, God, kill my enemies. Well, <laughs> Jesus came on the scene and he told us to do what to our enemies? To love them, right? So there's a change. So you open up the Psalms and you're like, well, we just have to remember. The things that were written here in the Old Testament, they were not written to us. They were written for us. And there's a difference. So we're going to look at some of those things because if you start to read about some of these laments and some of these imprecations that are in the Psalms, it's a little bit confusing. And I like the way that C.S. Lewis said it. He said, we have a greater hope and a deeper understanding in our Christian life. So some of those things have changed. So you're, you're asking yourself right now, so what are you saying? So can we pray prayers of lament? Can we sing songs of lament? Most definitely. But in order to do that, we have to have a framework of understanding the way that David would have. And I love this. I'd like to just reiterate this. I don't like it there. Last week, Brad said one thing, and he kind of left us with this. He said it throughout his message, and he left us with this. He said, God is near, and God... There were two people that were here last week. God is near and he hears. Do you remember that? That's an overarching thing from anyone who wrote a psalm to us. That can be an encouragement that God is near and he hears us. And that's an encouragement. So Psalm 1, Psalm 6, 1 through 3. The Lord said, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. About a year ago, I was preaching, and I don't know if it was this service or the next one, I was like, are you kidding me? I'm up here, and I'm starting to teach, and I'm like, I had to buy a Bible with a larger font. A year later, and guess what? Those of you that are younger, you're like, what's that all about? Oh, you just wait. When everything starts to droop, your eyes do too. Oh, Lord, 
rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, a lot of people will, will come to this, this, this psalm and they will say, well, David must have been confessing something. And I don't, I don't necessarily think he is. He's asking God not to be wrath, not to judge him or, or discipline him in his wrath. And a lot of commentaries and theologians go straight to, to Hebrews chapter 12 and talk about us and about how God disciplines us. And yes, he does as his children. And he does so in love. But listen, I think with, with the, uh, the parallelism in the Hebrew poetry here, let me, I'm just going to tell you what I really think this is here. He says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm languishing. I'm not in a good place. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled, and I really believe this is the juxtaposition. This is the, the, the other side of the Hebrew poetry. He says, my soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Now, how many of you have read the story of Job, and you understand there's a difference between, God, how long, and like, how long? There's that fine line that Job crossed at a certain point. Did David cross it? I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did in his prayer life. I think he comes to God and says, please, don't, don't discipline me, but I've got a question for you. I am absolutely miserable, and how long? Anybody else been there? Oh, no, we love suffering. We just hope it goes on and on and on, right? How long? He goes to God, and he's so bold to say, how long? And you know, it reminded me, Psalm, Psalm 13 says this, How long, O Lord, will you for, forget me forever? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David says, how long? He's not happy about it. And he laments. He just tells God, I, I don't want to. Some of the words that came up this week as I was preparing, distress, anguish, suffering, confusion, agony, discomfort, sorrow, grief, anger, just angst. Anybody else? I'm not a big anger person, but I'm a big angst person. It's kind of like that mixture, like anger gets married to anxious and you got angst. Many times, I believe our feelings and our, our emotions, they are they're opposite. They lead us in the opposite direction of running to God. I believe one of the ways we do that, we hide. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, what did they do? Because of their shame, they hid. We have sin or we have difficult circumstances in our life. We don't run to God in just genuine, authentic prayer. We hide. And this may have been a time that David had sinned in a psalm where he began out a confession where he knew that his enemies he had come against him because God had done that as a judgment and punishment. And that very, may, very well may be. But we hide. How many of you are hiders? How many of you in a relationship, whenever there's friction, you hide? Instead of going to somebody and saying, we need to work this out. Number two, hurt. Hurt people hurt people. We hide and we hurt. How many of us were miserable in our lives, so instead of going to God and pouring our heart out 
to him, we hurt other people with our words or with our actions. Hiding and hurting. Sometimes we, we hurt people we don't even maybe intend to. And it was so good. A good friend of Hill City and, and, a, and a professor at Missouri State uh, taught here not too long ago and, and had some just wise words about this generation and how venting has become a thing. Well, I just needed a vent. I just needed to vent. Have you ever just thought about, well, maybe this other person doesn't need to hear me vent. Maybe it's not the most constructive way to communicate. You know who to vent to? There's one person who's always open to vent, and it can't hurt him. He can receive it. He can actually repackage that and put it back into you as health. It's God. You know what? We hide and we hurt. And you know, I was thinking about this. We also hallucinate. You think about whenever John wrote to the churches in Revelation, the church of Laodicea, and he says, what's crazy is you're rich, you're increased with goods, you, you think you have need of nothing, but you're wretched, you're miserable, you're pitiable, you're blind, and you're poor. And I think sometimes the reason we don't just go to God we think we're fine because sin has blinded us. In fact, we'll look at it later. But Peter says that what is so bad is that when you forget what Christ has done for you, you are literally, you become spiritually blind. And I can relate to that. Joking earlier, but listen, if I don't do this, it's just like, just little tiny words that I can't, he says, you just become blind. You don't see things right. And listen, we all do all three. We hide. We hurt with our words. We hallucinate. We think we're better than we are. We see things that, that are not so. I sent out a, um, a group me this week with our, our city group. And I said, hey, I'm doing, I'm, I'm teaching Psalm 6. Just read through it. And just let me know if you have any thoughts. Man, 20-somethings, sometimes I forget where they're at. I love their perspective. And um, one of the most lovely young ladies in our small group got back to me. A couple of them just read their study Bible and told me what their study Bible said. I called, please, come on. But one of them. One of our lovely young ladies wrote back to me. She processed it because she's been going through some of this. She's got a family member right now that is just deep, deep in grief and sorrow. And man, this is short, but it's just so profound. Sarah said this. We were never meant to carry the weight. You understand God's intent for his people, for humans, was to never carry some of the weights. And he actually allows to be put on us. And he actually puts them on us sometimes. But he doesn't allow us, he doesn't intend for us to carry the weight. It is so that we come to him and say, God, I can't carry it. You have to. I can't do it anymore. Why did he design it like that? I don't know. But he did. We were never meant to carry the weight. And we'll look, when we get to First Peter here in a minute, we'll look at that even more in depth. It says, how long, oh Lord, how long? Verses 6, 4 through 5. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. 
It says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Remember that. That is the key to this whole psalm. And really, it's the key to your whole Old Testament. For in the death, in death, there's no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? David didn't have a full understanding like we do of what is afterlife. But that's not even the point here. He's contrasting it, verse 5, with verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life and save me. And save me. This the, this verse, verse 4, is just a reflection of a larger narrative in your Bible. For you to understand why David could be so bold and how he could pray this, you have to understand his framework of thinking. You have to understand his mindset. I'll take you all the way back to what I really think is the most important passage in your Bible. It's Psalm chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Like, if you want to understand your Bible, if you understand Psalm 12, 1 through 3, and what grows out of that, you'll really truly understand the whole narrative and everything that happens to the very last page. But if you remember, God comes to Abram, later Abraham as we know him, and he makes him this promise. It later becomes a covenant, but for the sake, we'll, we'll use those two words interchangeably, covenant and promise. Because when God promises something like that, it's a covenant. He makes a covenant with man. And he says a lot to him, but he makes a, a, a promise for three things, land, seed, and blessing. The land is like, I'm going to give you a large chunk of land, and it's yours forever. Can't dig in that today. Seed, I'm going to make you a father of a, of a great people. And through those people, I'm going to bless the whole world with my son. Now, Abram wouldn't have understood that, but in the promise, he said, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless everyone else. Blessed to be a blessing. And also, with that, he said, I bless you, your enemies, they will I'll remove the blessing and they'll be cursed. But in that blessing, that would have been in David's mindset, that covenant that his people had. You move forward just a little bit later, and in fact, in chapter 12, he promises. 13, he reaffirms. 14, he reaffirms. In 15, 15th chapter of Genesis, you'll see that that's actually the covenant ceremony. And it's this weird chapter. It's dark, and it's bloody, and you think, what is this all about? That is how God decided to do a covenant ceremony. In fact, you see that darkness and that bloodiness again at Mount Sinai. If you remember the last year, we went through Hebrews, and you saw contrasted the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant that the writer of Hebrews was referring to was the law. When they got the law at Mount Sinai, God covenants with man. Let me just tell you something. To Abraham, he basically says, hey, I'm going to give you this unconditional. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you're obedient, whether you're disobedient, I will make this happen. At Sinai, he basically says, that is enhanced here. I want to be your God. You be my people and love me, and we'll make this happen now. And what happened? They were disobedient. That promise, the Abrahamic covenant, is always, has always been, and will always be in full effect. Our obedience depends on some of those things. You come, you move forward, and in 2 Samuel, in David's mind, there was a Davidic covenant where God promises your son will always have a seat on your throne, the throne of David. 
and it was speaking of Solomon, but if you keep reading, it definitely speaks of Jesus Christ as the son of David sitting on the throne. This is David's mindset when he comes to God and he prays against his enemies. He prays these kind of bold prayers. You think, well, how does he have such boldness? How can he get away with that? Because God has already promised things that David puts all of his faith in, and all he's doing is saying, God, you've already promised me that. I want it. That was his mindset. That was how David was so bold before the Lord. That relationship was based on something. It was based on the covenants. And so if you think about us, some of these covenants have applied. We were blessed in the Abrahamic covenant through Jesus Christ. We get to see the contrast of grace and the law. The throne of David. Jesus will come and reign again on the throne of David. Right? And you get to the new covenant that the writer of Hebrews talks about and Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3. What is our framework? What should be our thinking to come before God in prayer? The new covenant is all about one person, and who is it? Jesus. The new covenant is based on the death of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why it got dark when he was crucified? The blood was shed. That was literally a covenant ceremony for the new covenant. In the work, in the person of Jesus Christ is who we put our faith in. So when we come before God and we pray, we know he wants to be near us. He wants to listen. He wants to work based on the covenant that he already promised us. Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but man, that's comforting to know that if you're angry, if you're upset, if you're in distress, whatever you feel, you can come before him and the Holy Spirit takes it to God and he hears it. Without a proper framework of understanding God's steadfast love, we will misinterpret the circumstances and suffering. See, Way back here when God covenants something, he promises it. Is he always faithful to his promises, to his covenant? We call that God's covenant faithfulness. You know an exact phrase, an exact synonym of God's covenant faithfulness? His steadfast love. God's steadfast love for us is why we can go before him and we can pray anything to him, and he cares. He wants to be near us. He wants to hear us. Verses 6 through 10. I am weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. He introduces his enemies here. It says the poet here, the book I quoted earlier, the poet is unable to cope with circumstances spiraling out of control. Alone, he cannot get himself out of this storm of accusation and life-threatening opposition. He needs God. And I love this. I love this. Just a word from God to know that God hears and cares is enough to act. Because if you read through the psalm, I don't know if you see that there's no resolution. 
the resolution with his enemies, there's never resolution. The only resolution that David got, the one that he writes for us to have, for the people of God to have, so that we can go in the sanctuary, we can pray this prayer, we can pray prayers like it, the only resolution is what? We don't know exactly, but God must have spoken a word to him. He heard him. He might not even have answered the prayer yet, but at least he came back and said, wait, or yes. How many of you have ever been praying for something and you don't get a yes, but you get a, you get the Holy Spirit saying, I'm here, I'm listening, wait. It's very common. And so you think David sets this template for us that just one word is all we need to know that he is near and that he hears. Now, how many of us were just like, yeah, I know, but that's just, that's not good enough sometimes. Anyone else? Like, no, 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 I want an answer. In fact, I want the answer to be what I want it to be. But God says, no, 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 you take comfort in the fact that I love you, I'm near to you, and that I hear you. Because did you notice when he says how long in the first verse of Psalm 6? When he says how long, did you notice that there's immediately a, a difference of opinion on what the timing should be of his suffering? We always have that same opinion. God, can you just shorten this? Sometimes the long-suffering God wants us to be long-suffering. Just thinking about this, I thought of 1 Peter. At the very, very, very end in chapter 5, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. You got to understand, too, in the, the Psalms, the ancient Near East, it's all about shame and honor. It's a shame-honor culture. So when you read passages even like this, being exalted is when he brings you from your lowest point to being exalted and lifting you up. He says at the proper time, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then he rolls right into verse 8. No coincidence. Be sober-minded and be watchful. He says, don't let your emotions and your feelings rule you. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Why? Because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And many times he does this through hiding and hurting and hallucinating, and we're being devoured. Now, if there's any psychologists in here, we'll just go ahead and set up an appointment. One of the things I love watching, it's interesting, but it reframes my thinking. I watch videos. I automatically, on social media, have these, all of these reserves in these places, videos just lined up in the queue. And some of you know where I'm going. I watch lions devour other animals. I, I love to see them hunt and prey in groups. In fact, every once in a while, you root for these other animals and a lion gets killed. And you're like, that's kind of morbid. Yeah, like I said, just sign me up, all right? 
Just make the appointment. I'm telling you, it helps me reframe how I think. He, he walks around like a roaring lion. Oh, they're just words. No, they're words that these people would have understood what happens to animals. Do you ever think when he tells the disciples, hey, you're, you're going out as lambs amongst wolves. Oh, okay, I guess I'm going to get hurt. No, no, no. It would have been a bloody mess in their mind. He's not just using those words for any reason. He's using that figure of speech to bring up what happens to a lamb when a wolf attacks it. And in Peter here, he just says, he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And one of the ways he devours us is trying to get us to go to anywhere but to God. He knows that if we go to God, the relationship is intimate, that things happen because of the power of prayer. He wants us to do anything else like hide or hurt or hallucinate. It's that connection to the enemies also. You know, we live in a time where we love to throw around the world the words vulnerability, humility, authenticity. And sometimes we don't use those in the proper context, do we? David and his prayers, other authors of the Psalms, they're pretty authentic. Sometimes they're not pretty. I just want to remind you that God absolutely loves reconciliation and restoration. And in a few minutes, a few minutes, you're going to be able to come down here. And you have an opportunity to take communion. And you have an opportunity to pray. Do you realize that this is just an outward example of us trying to tell you God is always ready to receive. He's always ready to reconcile and to restore a relationship. I know there's some of you in here, I've been there, that today you don't feel like you can go to God for anything. For whatever reason, you feel distant from him and you do not pray. I hope that the summer in the Psalms is a help. I hope it's a I hope it's, it's a help that will, that will help you reframe how you think about God and how he's near and how he wants us to come to him and how he hears us. Now, we're going to end by doing something a little different. I told you the theme of this message, really the theme of your Old Testament, and if you change the words, the theme of the whole Bible, is God's steadfast love. We're going to go to Psalm 136. And it's going to be up here for you. And what we're going to do, I, I don't know about you, I love to be in a service where I at least participate a little. I love taking communion every week so I don't feel like I'm literally just coming and doing nothing. I'm just sitting in a chair and just receiving. I like to be participatory. I love the way we do readings. This is long. And I think I know why it's long. Because in order for us to retrain how we think, to retrain our mindset that God's steadfast love based on the covenant of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. I think sometimes that's not our first inclination of how we approach God. But when we approach God, it is based on Jesus Christ. Breaking down the wall, making it available just to come before Jesus anytime we want. So up here on your screen... You have the last part. I will read the first part of each verse, or verse it. And then I want us as a congregation 
to read this aloud. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made great lights. The sun to rule over the day. Did the sun come up this morning? Why does he put this in there? The sun comes up just the same every day. The way he made that, his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. Now before we start verse 10, we go back all the way over here. And when he makes that promise to Abraham in chapter 12, I told you in 15 there's this weird little covenant ceremony. And in that, he makes a prophecy. He says, the people that I give you, they will spend 400 years in slavery and captivity. And he's prophesying what? The nation of Israel going into Egypt as slaves. And in Exodus chapter 3, it was what reminded me and tied all of this together for the message this morning. It said that God heard the cry of his people in slavery in Egypt. And it said he remembered them. It's not like he forgot. He remembered according to his covenant that he had prophesied that that he was going to do that for his people. And he said, I am come down to deliver them. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it but overthrew Pharaoh and the host in the Red Sea to him who led his people through the wilderness And we skip 17 through 22. 23. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures who gives us food to all flesh for his Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. This morning, if you're serving communion, please please come down. This morning, 
as we come down here to take communion, I want it to be a reminder for you. This is representation of the basis of that steadfast love and the covenant of Jesus Christ. We remember that and what he did for us. Us taking communion is a reminder of that love, that steadfast love that he has for us. And we remember him and we thank him for it. Now, as we take communion each week, you know that we will also have staff and people that are, that are just down here to pray with you. Listen, if your heart is heavy this morning, maybe use it as an opportunity, someone to help you connect to God. I pray for each one of you that what we're doing here, taking communion, that with his steadfast love enduring forever, like we just read over and over and over, that that would become a pattern of thinking that drives us to God when we're in need. If you would, please stand, take communion.